The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels imprisoned who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released For them, Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much for reading that passage, Ruth. And good morning, everyone. It's a great delight for me to be back here. The last time I spoke was at the uh, theater, and uh, that was... Very eventful time. I don't know if some of you remember that. The light went out as I was speaking. There's a little lamp that was there, and that was really lifesaver for me. Had it not been for that lamp, would not have been able to look at my manuscript. So um, there's no lamp here, but I guess there's a huge chandelier here too. <laughs> I was noticing that. I was like, okay, well, here we go. Um, so thank you, uh, Pastor Ross, for that wonderful prayer. Um, less than 48 hours ago, a tragedy struck in Christchurch, New Zealand. 50 Muslims who had escaped their own countries of birth uh, in order to avoid violence ended up meeting it in Christchurch, a very peaceful, mid-sized city in New Zealand. And um, so thank you for reminding us that um, we are in solidarity with our sisters and brothers who are suffering at the moment. Before I look at the word together with you, I wanted to share a little bit of an anniversary uh, event that is happening. So 
if you remember, if you're kind of steeped in the sort of Protestant tradition, you might remember 2017 being the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Perhaps much less known is the 800th anniversary of this event that took place. Uh, so this event took place in Damietta, Egypt in uh, 1219. Uh, Francis of Assisi, right? Many of you know him by the what? The prayer of peace. But in fact, that's about the only thing we people seem to know or that he was a tree-hugging kind of maybe, uh, you know, uh, so uh, preaching to the birds and that kind of a... Um, earth-loving saint. Well, he was that too, but there's another thing that we don't know much about, and that is that he actually went uh, right at the height of the Fifth Crusade in 1219. He went to Damietta, Egypt, which is just a little north of Cairo, to talk with the sultan, the king of Egypt, uh, named Al-Kamil, and uh, he had a three-day consultation with Al-Kamil in order to convert him to Christianity, and they had a very interesting engagement. And his 800th anniversary of that kind of a genuine effort in the middle of war and all the rubbles of war to talk the kind of mission of peace. And I do think that it's really important, especially in our global and pluralistic age as Christians, to think of kind of God-honoring ways of engaging with uh, the religious and cultural and racial other. And I want to kind of remind us of that particular anniversary um, there's a book by Paul Moses called The Saint and the Sultan. It's actually a really, really fascinating book that will help us to see that a little bit better. Um, if it is okay, I'd like to just uh, say a quick prayer, and then we'll look at today's text together. Gracious God, we once again lift up our hearts as your spirit empowers us to do so. We look to the word that has been read and which is about to be explained and expounded and proclaimed. But also we look to the word that will be participated in our elements of bread and wine or grape juice. That in our corporate and comprehensive act of our liturgy, they will encounter the living God. That we will know that our life is not in vain because you say that we belong to you. May that happen even in this act of proclaiming your word now and for your glory. Amen. So uh, today's sermon highlights two characters, among others, uh, for our consideration and reflection. And they are Pontius Pilate and Barabbas. Admittedly, more is known about the former than the latter, right? The, and Pontius Pilate was a middle-of-the-road Roman governor who, according to the testimonies of both the Gospels and the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote in the first century himself, was an odious individual who was particularly insensitive to Jewish concerns and customs. Josephus, this historian, noted with sadness that when Pontius Pilate, quote, brought his army from Caesarea and moved into winter quarters at Jerusalem, he intended to subvert the Jewish customs by introducing into the city statues of the busts of the emperor that were attached to the military flags or standards when our Jewish law and religion forbids the making of images. So not a very culturally sensitive ruler or emissary or representative of the Roman Empire as it sought to rule with relative benevolence to further actualize the ideal of Pax Romana or the Roman peace. Barabbas, on the other hand, is shrouded in a greater darkness of history or the lack thereof. 
All we know that is that he was a murderer and an insurrectionist. Knowing the procedures for Roman law for individuals such as Barabbas, he had no rights, he had no hope, he had no life besides those spent in the stench of Roman dungeon with a plethora of dehumanizing experiences and degrading of his sense of self for the crimes that he had committed. So all he was looking forward to was the day of his execution, which often meant, more often than not, crucifixion. And we'll see the irony of the juxtaposition of Barabbas and Jesus in a few minutes. We'll develop these characters a bit more in the sermon, but as we get started, I wanted to let you know what these three quick points are. First point is, don't be that guy. Second point is, you are that guy. Third point is, he became that guy. Point one will be rather obvious to most of us. Don't be that guy. Point two will kick up a notch, a sense of surprise, as you and I are likely to ask ourselves, what do you mean you are that guy? And yet, most surprising of all, in my estimation, is number three. He became that guy. We probably know who that he is, but let's see how that ends up. So on to the first point then. The first point, and in fact the shortest point of the three is this. Don't be that guy. As we have read this story, it is admittedly hard for us to identify with either Pontius Pilate or Barabbas or both. Most parents or teachers do not encourage their children or students by saying, nah, we want you to grow up and be just like Pontius Pilate, PP, or like Barabbas. (laughs) Not really. It is rather hard, although not completely, not completely impossible, to find Christian names that have Pontius Pilate as part of their names or Barabbas. I don't know if you ever met a Barabbas or Pontius or Pilate or things of that nature. Throughout the history of Christian preaching, many priests, pastors, bishops, and others had lifted these uh, examples of Pontius Pilate, Pilate, and Barabbas as how not to live one's life. I've surveyed preaching from 4th century Constantinople to 16th century Geneva to uh, 20th century Seoul to 20th century North America. And the converging point when they talk about Pilate or Barabbas is they don't put it this way in a pithy way, but basically it all boils down to don't be that guy. Don't be like them. Well, what, what aspects of Pontius Pilate do we know here in today's text? One, I mean, as you... Um, you know, as we have heard, Pilate seems to have known that Jesus was not guilty as charged, right? He, he seemed to know that uh, this is not the right guy to condemn to death. Two, moreover, it seems that Pilate was at points amazed by the silence of Jesus. Not only did he have this inclination that this guy is probably not guilty, but he was also amazed at the sort of the, the silence before the authorities. The silence in terms of the lack of defensive rhetoric on the part of Jesus. You know, if you read the gospel accounts, both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find that Jesus makes almost no attempt to defend himself. Right? And that to me is really amazing. If you find yourself being charged, I mean, if you're a death sentence hanging over your head, I don't know about you, but I'll do my absolute best to extricate myself from that snare and say, you know what, I'm not that man that you're talking about. 
Number three, he knew that it was out of self-interest or envy that the crowd had handed Jesus over to him, as our text clearly tells us. So Pilate not only, I mean, he knew that he wasn't guilty, and he further knew that Jesus was actually, uh, you know, uh, put there by the self-interest and envy and jealousy of some of the leaders and the crowd. Number four, he was warned by his wife, as reported not in this gospel, but in Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 19, as it reads, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I, the, the wife of Pilate, have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So very mysterious account, but nonetheless, the gospel writer Matthew includes that as a way of saying, look, it was not only Pilate's encounter with Jesus that convinced him, relatively speaking, that he's dealing with an innocent man, but his wife had reported and said, please, don't mess about with that guy because he's an innocent man and I suffered a great deal because of a dream. So his own kind of a, a conclusion, as well as a spousal nightmare, must have led, or should have led, Pilate to actually say this man is innocent. Number five, Pilate washes his hands in front of the crowd. Don't see that here, but as a symbolic act of indicating in John's gospel, we do, that I am not guilty, it's on you. So, you know, Pilate is pretty convinced that, you know, I'm actually dealing with an innocent man and I don't want to actually condemn somebody who's innocent to death. And then, they, the Jewish leaders in the crowd, said, you know, the, the, let the blood be on our hands. So Pilate washes his hands, and it's on you then. So this kind of evasion of responsibility. Number six, did not, I don't think he did this as a way of political gain, although he wasn't that popular with the Jewish crowds. He wasn't that popular because in Luke's account, you know, Pilate had done some dastardly act of just messing with Jewish religion and customs and in a temple, kind of desecrated temple, killed a few Jews. So maybe it was a political, it's not that clear as for, for political gain, but more than anything else, it was clear that the pressure of the, the, the leaders and the mob really did get to him. So then what, what do we see, you know, if we say, oh, don't be that guy? Well, I mean, he seems to have been motivated more by cowardice than courage. So don't be that guy, okay? Number two, being pressured into doing things that you actually know are not right. Pilate seems pretty convinced that what he was doing was not the right course of action, right? And yet he does. And number three, evasion of responsibility, right? Evasion of number responsibility. Cowardice rather than courage, pressured into doing things that you know was wrong, three even after that evasion of responsibility. So don't be that guy. Easy enough. And it's kind of interesting. But, you know, if, the, if Christian preaching ended right there, don't be that person, they would be simple enough, yet they would be really shortchanging the nature of the gospel for the sake of brevity. Right? Because, I mean, every time I preach here or in, in, our, in the uh, music row location, I have to, like, hurry back to the to uh, Old Hickory uh, location. So if I were to stop preaching right now, I would have plenty of time to leisurely drive back to Old Hickory, but that would be really shortchanging the nature of the Christian message. What about Barabbas? Barabbas is rather simple. Do not murder and become such a bête noire. I mean, that's pretty easy enough. So first point is don't be that guy, and I promise you that it will be the shortest of three points. So don't be that guy. And much Christian, uh, Christian preaching, actually, when they talk about Pilate or Barabbas, they seem to really kind of focus, highlight that, right? Don't be like this person. Simple enough. 
or is it? Let's move quickly to the second point. You are that guy. I am that guy. Dale Bruner, this New Testament scholar who for a while taught at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington, has this fantastic commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And this is what he had to say about Pontius Pilate and how we are not in many ways no different from him at all. He wrote, Pilate is not innocent of this blood any more than anyone else is. The commander of the Roman legion should not succumb to mob rule. Pilate is guilty as sin. All the water in the world cannot wash innocent blood from a guilty person's hands. Only blood removes blood. If Pilate repents, the church teaches, the water of baptism, which is blood red, will wash all his guilty stains. By protesting innocence saves no one, only confessing guilt does. End quote. You are that guy, I am that guy, according to Dale Bruner. Some of us who love Shakespeare know and love Macbeth. The traitor and treacherous and murderous Scottish general Macbeth, who becomes blinded by his passion for power and ends up killing Duncan. In Act 2, chapter, I was seen 2, he's haunted and wrecked by guilt after murdering Duncan, so he cries out. Whence is that knocking? He's always hearing knocking sound. No one else is hearing it. He's hearing it in his head. Whence is that knocking? How is it with me when every noise appalls me? What hands are here? Ha, huh, they pluck out my, mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash away this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas in incarnadine, making the green one red. He's saying, look, I want to wash away my hands, and if even I were to go dip my hands into the ocean that is green, it'll actually make the green ocean red because of this stain that will not go away. Yet at the same time, how does Lady Macbeth answer this tormented and tortured soul? She says, my hands are of your color, but I shame to wear a heart so white. I hear a knocking, a little water clears us of this deed. She's much more cavalier about it. She's like, you know what? Okay, a little water will clear us of this deed. But further along in that play, in Act 5, we find Lady Macbeth also deeply in anguish, an infernal madness where she says, yet here is a spot. Oh, out, damn spot, out, I say. One, two, why then this time do do it? Hell is murky. Fie, my lord, fie, a soldier and afraid. What need we fear who knows it when none can call our power to account? And this is a real kind of punchline here. What, will these hands never be clean? No more of that, my lord, no more of that. You mar all with this startling. Here's a smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Yes, friends, I am that guy. I am that woman, you are that guy, you are that woman. Guilty as charged, all the perfumes of Arabia, no matter how hard we try, will not sweeten this little hand that is bloodied. Shakespeare knew it. Shakespeare knew that we're guilty as charged. You know what? As we are reading the story of Pontius Pilate and, and Barabbas, I don't know about you, but there arose within my own soul a sense of smug self-righteousness and superiority. I'm better than Pontius Pilate. I'm certainly better than Barabbas. Yet as, as we really seek to understand the nature of the gospel, 
nature of the event of the crucifixion of Jesus, then more moving from that point of saying, don't be that guy, we come to the point of recognizing that I am that guy. One of the other set of characters that we have encountered in this text is the crowd, right? And what do they say? Crucify him, crucify him. So about this, this uh, uh, Danish philosopher, Christian named Soren Kierkegaard, um, writes about these powerfully haunting words, crucify him. He said, if I had been there myself, as the black spiritual asked this you know, question in a song, were you there when they crucify my Lord? Kierkegaard says, if I had been there, and think about it, if you were there, how would you have responded? Right? Let's say you had followed Jesus for a couple of years. You know that he is an awesome teacher. You know that he's performed some wonderful miracles, and yet he's hanging on a cross. And everybody's saying, crucify him and crucify him, and you are a dissenting minority. What would you do? Kierkegaard writes so painfully and poignantly and powerfully, actually. He says, you know what? I would walk away feeling, one, sorry for Jesus, because I know he's innocent. But two, because fearing my own life, because the crowd that are saying crucify him, crucify him, might turn on me and says, why don't we crucify him too? Because he's with Jesus. And walk away knowing that he was innocent. So according to Kierkegaard, he says, you know what, if I had been there when Jesus was crucified, I would not have joined in the crowd of saying crucify him, but at the same time, I would not have said courageously, release this man for he is free and innocent. I would be complicit in that act of crucifixion for I'll be feeling so guilty, feeling horrible that my Lord and my teacher is being crucified, and yet I wouldn't have the gumption and the courage to say, stop that madness. You are that guy. I am that guy. That leads us then to the final point of this morning's message. He became that guy. So before we go into the third point, I hope you're feeling terrible. <laughs> That's the point. That's the whole thrust of just building it up. Because we should feel terrible because if you had been there, you would have done no better than many of the crowd who had followed him before. Because do you not realize that Jesus' triumphal entry, the time elapsed between his entry into Jerusalem and his crucifixion was how long? One week. And many say that, you know, the same crowd, the number of people who have said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who are so excited about the Messianic advent of Jesus, man, there was an overlap between them and the crowd that said what? Crucify him, crucify him. You see, I don't know about you, but I realize more and more that I am that guy. If I had been, I mean, many of my friends who aren't Christians said, you know, if only I could be back in the first century and really watch what Jesus did, I would have followed him. I often say, you know, are you sure about that? Because it doesn't seem like the majority of Jerusalem population turned to Jesus. It actually turned on Jesus. So we need to be really careful what we ask for. I am actually really thankful that I lived live now in the 21st century with hindsight and benefits of two millennia of reflection, Christian and otherwise, about the nature of Jesus, his mission, and is anywhere and any time, in fact, to believe in God, in Jesus Christ, is a miracle of miracles. So third point, he became that guy. 
According to a refugee pastor in 16th century Geneva named John Calvin, he wrote, God's son stood trial before a mortal man named Pilate and suffered accusation and condemnation from the crowd that we might stand without fear in the presence of God. What is he developing here? It is that what scholars will call, what many will call the theology of substitution. That Christ become my substitute. Christ takes my thing and makes it his own. I was driving about a month, month and a half ago uh, on Belmont Boulevard, uh, going from home, uh, school to home, and that's the road that I often take to go home. And I'm in the habit of listening to music, and, and this song came on the radio, and uh, this singer, she had me at the first line. She sounded a lot like a singer that I like, Adele, and the words went like this. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I am not enough. I was like, okay, this is a great song. So I don't know about you. When I listen to a great song for the first time, I tend to slow down. I don't speed up. I started, and Belmont Boulevard, you have to go like 30 miles an hour. So I started to slow down. Second line, every single lie that tells me I'll never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. The four lines are, you know, song, and then I pulled over to Lipscomb University's parking lot, pulled out my phone, and then I Googled the words, Adele song, and I, it turned out it's not Adele. It's a, it's a Christian singer who sounds just like Adele named Lauren Daigle. It's, and it's, it became, so ever since then, about a month and a half ago, how many of you know this song, actually? All right, there's quite a few. I listened to it about 50 times. Like it's on my playlist when I'm working out. Because to me, it really, in some ways, powerfully encapsulates how I feel. Because there are voices within me that say, I'm not enough. There are people in the world and voices within me and people from the past that tell me that I'll never measure up. Began to listen more. You say I am loved, yet when I, when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I think I am weak. You say I'm hell when I'm falling short. When I don't belong, you say I am yours, and I believe, I believe what you say of me, I believe. So in that parking lot, I was like weeping. Because it kind of like spoke so powerfully into my deep darkness of my soul. Often struggling with depression, often almost every day feeling like I don't measure up. Let me say that again. Almost every day feeling like I don't measure up. And so for me, I need this theology of substitution. Because when I just go on with my life, I always somehow get reminded of the fact that I am that guy. I struggle between the sense of ethical superiority and ethical inferiority. I feel like sometimes, hey, I'm not that guy. Don't be that guy. And at other times, I feel like I am that guy. So the law accuses me by revealing to me where I've fallen short. Yet the gospel comes into play, reminds me that I belong. Reminds me as to whose I am. Shows me all the areas where I don't measure up. Shows me all that I am that I'm not enough. And yet, that third point, he became that guy. Christ became sin for me. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Who knew no sin, Christ who was imp impeccable in his life journey, became sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know about you. I've been a Christian for uh, about 30 years now. 
this gospel stuff doesn't make any sense to me. Like, how is that possible? Right? I mean, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to say, like, this is nonsense. But at times it sounds like nonsense. How is it that he takes my thing and your thing, everybody's thing, and he becomes condemned in my place? And in that act of crucifixion and condemnation, I am let go and scot-free? That seems to make no sense at all. And yet that is exactly what the Bible tells us as to the plan of God was in redeeming the world and bringing all the world unto himself. You say I'm love when I can't feel a thing. That's right. Because he went numb for me. He experienced death for me. He experienced that feeling of dereliction and abandonment for me. You might feel like I am alone. I might feel like, no, I feel like I am alone. And yet Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became that guy. Now let's think about Barabbas. He alone in all of history of humanity can say that Jesus literally became my substitute. Think with me about Barabbas one more time. You're, let's say you're Barabbas and I'm Barabbas. We're listening, we're in our jail cell, and we're hearing these words, crucify him and crucify him. And you're thinking, oh, dang, I am damned today. Right? Because you're next up. And then what do you know? You're not being led away to Golgotha. They're not, the soldiers are not coming down, unshackling you and taking you out of your jail cell. Somebody else is. And you get to catch a glimpse of that guy and you're thinking, something has gone wrong. I knew injustice prevailed, but that guy seems innocent. In fact, what I've heard was that he was actually a very, very great teacher, healed many and performed great miracles and fed the hungry and did all the right things. And he's being led astray. And Barabbas was now set free as a result of the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus became Barabbas, son of the father. The word means son, bar means son. Abba meaning father. Yes. Barabbas was that accursed son of the father. Jesus takes his place. And he becomes that accursed son of the father. And so he became that God. And that is whom we are celebrating as we come forward to receive the elements of the Eucharist. That it is his broken body, not Barabbas's. It is Jesus' shed blood, not Barabbas's. And in that historical substitution... In that act of some innocent guy going to jail and going to be crucified and a truly guilty man walking scot-free, in that act of, in that height of human injustice, God's justice was being served. He became that guy. Crazy substitution. So we can ask, and can it be? And somebody did. Charles Wesley, this great Wesleyan hymn writer and a theologian, writes in this one of my favorite hymns of all time, and can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who causes pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be? And this is a real punchline, that thou, my God, should die for me. See, Charles Wesley knew it right. That, and when Jesus died, it wasn't just an innocent man, the putative king of Israel who was being crucified and experiencing death. Charles Wesley came to understand, as in many after Jesus, that it was indeed God himself who would put himself on the stand 
who would be on the dock, who would stand trial, who would be crucified, who would experience the literal experience of dying, that God's death meant human liberation and life. And that's where we are today, worshiping. So as we really understand once again in some, that don't be that guy. You are that guy, and he became that guy. In a nutshell, the gospel message, if we really understand that correctly now, then there is actually, friends, no room for any kind of sense of ethnic sense of superiority or supremacy. At the foot of the cross, every one of us finds justification because we are that guy, and yet Christ became that guy for you and for me. So we rightfully mourn with our, our Muslim brothers and sisters who have lost their loved ones. Knowing that there's convergences and divergences, we're not the same religion, right? We, don't, we may not worship the same God, yet at the same time, we're all created as Pastor Russ pray for us, that created in the image of God. I mean, think about, I mean, this is a haunting idea, right? You come to the place of worship to meet God. Then you end up getting killed in there. Think of, I mean, it's not unthinkable for Christians to experience death in, in a church. Those things have happened. Those things will happen. So we need to, again, think about what are the points of connection. Christ became that guy for the salvation of the world. So we, not with any sense of superiority, but with a genuine gospel-defined humility, that says, you know what? I'm going to be, you know, uh, blessed are the feet of that carry the good news. I want to be that person who'd carry the good news and embody the gospel because the gospel gives us a sense of, sense of humor about ourselves. Don't take ourselves so seriously. Yes, I am that guy, but also knowing that he became that guy, that also empowers us to join in the work of the gospel wherever they may be, whether in Williamson County or Davidson County or this country or abroad, because Christ became that guy for us so that he's now calling us, why don't you be my hands and my feet of the good news. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded of the fact that Pontius Pilate and Barabbas encountered you in different ways. That they come from different class background and national background and all of those things, as do we. And in their encounter with you, they did not walk away changed. Lord, we pray that rather than just stopping with don't be that guy, may we realize that I am that guy. But help us not to stop there, but go further and say, he became that guy so that I may be free. Lord, in our freedom, help us to serve. In our life, help us to die unto our own pride and unto our own senses of superiority or whatever they may be. And in our battles with our sense of inadequacy and inferiority, help us to know that we are yours. That the voices that call us, that our hands are bloodied, help us to know that, yeah, they are. That Christ, his blood cleanses us all. So help us to know it deep within our soul as we are about to receive these powerful and life-giving elements of bread and wine and grape juice for our salvation and for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.